and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I am thrilled that you are here to talk with us today. We are going to have an exciting conversation with a daughter who cared for her mother, and we're going to talk about how do you love when it's really hard <laughs> at times, and, and we do have those difficult moments. Um, of, of showing love. But before I get started, I want to give a couple of shout outs. One is to Artist Senior Living. Um, please come and join us on the 10th of October uh, from 4.30 to 5. It'll be registration and dinner. Uh, 5 to 6 will be a presentation and I will be doing one on Betty the Bald Chicken Lessons in How to Care and then if you are going to be in Texas, I'll be down in Amarillo, Texas, on November 10th, uh, celebrating the 14th Annual Caregiver Conference with um, the Area Agency on Aging. And I'm really excited to be down there, going to do a, a full day program. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so please join us. You can reach out at 806 Three three one two 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 seven for the event in Texas, and for the one in Woodbury, you can call six five one four three nine two eight four zero. I also want to uh, let people know they can go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There we have one whole tab that is all free resources. There's a tons of different things from dementia-friendly communities and memory cafes to dementia chats and dementia in the arts and so much more. So please visit those. And uh, you can also get to Dementia Map, which is our global resource directory, which is free to use and no one's going to ever ask you for any contact information. Uh, you can also go there and sign up if you are um, a vendor, if you have a service product or tool or a social media group that you want listed, absolutely no cost. Of course, we do have things that can be upgraded if you would like to do that as well. So I think it's time to introduce you to our guests. So let's do that right now. So Carolyn, I am so excited to have you on the show. I've heard about um, you and your book actually for quite a while. And I am really, uh, really excited to have you share your story with our audience here on Alzheimer's Speaks. So I'm going to have you first introduce yourself uh, to our audience, and then we'll, we'll get into your story. Okay, that sounds great. It's such a pleasure to be here. I've been following you for a while, Lori. Your, your dementia maps is something that's really, uh, to me, a wonderful resource. And uh, listening to your your radio uh, talks has been has been great. So I, I liked getting caught up on all of that, especially before we got a chance to speak. Um, I'm the author of Walking with Faye. Uh, it's been out since Mother's Day 
of 2022. So just over a year and a half now. And I've, I've uh, found myself speaking with uh, podcasters and doing some public speaking now and some, some book club uh, talks. Because what I'm finding is there are so many people who have this story to tell. And the purpose of my book was to help that new shocked caregiver uh, understand that they're not alone in all this. And this big thing that's now happening to them has happened to others. And although they're not feeling at all like they have a, a handle on how to how to deal with this or that their emotions are warranted or that the mistakes they made are normal. My book was, you know, written so that then people behind me could kind of feel that validation and normalcy and and in the end nudge them toward, you know, loving, toward loving that person that has become suddenly so unlovable to them. Well, that's a really, um, I think why so many people write these books is they all felt isolated and alone. Like where, where is everyone else like me? And we, we come out the other side going, we want to be able to help others. We want to teach others and at least pull that element out. And hopefully they'll learn some other things along, along the way with this, um, because it is just so, so overwhelming. Uh, now, you know, your mom's got dementia. Have you had other people in your family, your circle of friends um, with dementia around you as well? I had never experienced it before. In fact, in 2012, when my sister and I went to North Georgia to to get her and, and virtually kidnap her and trick her into coming to Idaho, where I live, we hadn't ever even used the word dementia. You know, we, we described our mother as quirky. You know, she's getting old. She's repeating herself. She's, you know, she's doing all these things, but I did my very best to normalize it and, and call it those things and just say, mom, you know, you told me that story six times in one phone call. And, and that was the beginning of all the mistakes I began making before I learned what dementia really was. Okay. So what, at what point and what kinds of things were happening that you decided you had to get more involved? You said, you know, she repeated herself six times in one phone call and stuff, but I'm sure there were some other, other signs as well. I let that go on for more than a year. You know, we had our morning phone call. We had a three hour time difference. She would go out on her walk and at 10 o'clock she would call me for my 7 a.m., morning cup of coffee with her. And she talked a good game. She would tell me about her garden and her church and her neighbor that she made a pan of lasagna for because his wife died. Uh, you know, she had a cat and we would talk about the cat and all of the walks she went on because that was her thing. Uh, and that's why I titled my book Walking with Faye. She was, you know, a literal and figurative walker. Um, I visited her from Idaho once a year. It was that obligatory, you know, go on out and see my mother, spend a long weekend with her, and then go back home to my very busy life. But the morning talks were, you know, the thing that kept me connected to her and kept me in denial because she sounded fine. Other than, you know, like I said, other than the repeated statements that she made, things started getting a little bit worse when she started talking about a man she was sure was at the end of her driveway watching her house at night because she 
counted the number of cigarette butts that she found at the end of her driveway. And then she started losing things. Uh, Jewelry was turning up missing. And she was sure that somebody was coming in at night and moving things around. Her quilts weren't in the same spot that she had put them the night before. Those kinds of things were starting to put, you know, alarm systems up on me, but I still tried reasoning with her and rationalizing those things away. You know, mom, there couldn't possibly be somebody doing that. It really wasn't until I was awakened very early one morning uh, by a sheriff and the sheriff called me and said, you know, we found your number and I want you to know your mother has been driving on the wrong side of the road and cutting people off. And I've been getting uh, calls about that. And even then, you know, it was like, 5 a.m. It was dark out and I and I blinked my eyes in the the dark and I said, well, can't you do something? You know, you're there. I'm 3000 miles away. Can you, you know, pull her over next time or take her license away from her? And and he said, ma'am, I need you to I need you to step in your family. So I assured him that I would. But when I hung up, I knew I wasn't I wasn't going to have that conversation with my mother because I knew exactly how that would go. She would be upset. She would be paranoid that her neighbors were telling on her and she would most likely deny it. Not too soon after that, I got a phone call from the Department of Health and Family Services and a nurse had been assigned to my mother's care because she had fallen and her neighbor discovered her. She hadn't been taking her diabetes uh, medication properly. And when they stabilized her, she couldn't remember anybody to give them a name to come get her. So they assigned a nurse, the nurse brought her home, took one look around the house and saw the condition she was living in and called me, found my phone number on the refrigerator. And she really laid into me. She, she asked me what kind of a daughter would, would let her mother live in those deplorable conditions. And I honestly didn't know what deplorable conditions she was talking about because my mother you know, her, her housekeeping had slipped for sure. But during the year that I had seen her, I had no idea just how bad it had gotten in her house. Wow. And you know, that whole sense of denial is normal. I, um, I used to sell real estate for 25 years. And so I, I worked with a lot of families and and seniors in transitions. And I, I always ended up looking at my parents like, well, it, oldest 10 years older than them. And and in my mind, that kept them safe. And it kept me safe. I didn't have to deal with anything, you know, and then stuff hit the fan. And my mom had dementia, my dad got brain cancer, and there wasn't anything around it. But the other thing I think that's really interesting is as a society, and even our kids in school, we don't teach anything about aging. And so we just hear, well, that's kind of normal aging, you get forgetful. And you know, so you, that's where we go. That's just a normal thing to do. And then you add in as things get worse, you know, you're looking at, well, what do I do with my life? What do I do with their life? And then we kind of, everyone shuts down because nobody really wants to address it until there's a crisis. Um, And it's, it's too bad that you were, you know, scolded by that nurse, because again, that doesn't, add to the communication flavor of let's all get along here. And again, you know, you're 3000 miles away. 
Um, but yeah, that, those are some pretty big things driving on the wrong side of the road. And then the falls, not being able to take the medication and the diabetes thing. I can't tell you how many times I've heard both of those stories. And, um, you know, it's just, it's way more common than people like to admit on that. How about the pandemic? Um, you know, was your mom still living alone or was she with you by that time? When I went to get her, it was 2012. Okay. So I moved her to Idaho and I spent eight years chasing after her. Okay. <laughs> and we tried, we tried a number of different things. The first thing was I had bought a house and renovated it and put all of her choicest possessions in that house. The rest made it to, you know, the goodwill and the dump mm-hmm. and her church. But um, I tried that for almost a year and just, it was just a dose of reality. She was so much further along than I had ever anticipated. And I was learning about dementia. Um, so she went from there. I tricked her again. She was, that's where she was. She was lucid most of the time and convincing, but trickable. So I learned about, you know, white lies. I learned about that whole fibbing process that we read about that we're so uncomfortable with because we're sure we're going to be found out. But I learned how to say, you know, Hey mom, I'm going to repair the leak you have in your roof, which there was none, but we're going to need you to get out of the house because they're going to have to tear the whole roof off. So I'm going to put you up in a hotel for just a little while. And that was the first care facility I put her in. And she went semi-willingly. But we moved from that one to another care facility to a more memory care facility that she lasted 30 days in, then to a much more secure memory care facility in the town south of me, which I really tried not to do that because it's a a 40-minute drive south and a a deer-dodging highway, you know, the whole way. But that's where she lasted her last um, her last four years of the eight years. So we 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 spent you know eight years caring caring for her and learning about dementia and trying to trying to get myself comfortable with all of that. And then the p- pandemic hit. The pandemic. Uh, I was in Florida for the winter. Got the phone call that my mother looked like she had had a stroke, and um, I jumped on a plane in March of 2020. Florida had just become a hot spot. New York had just shut down and Idaho had just started its um, no traveling rules. It was a series of canceled flights and rerouted flights and a huge airplane with a dozen people on it. And we all just kind of looked at each other like, what is going on? And then I went through the whole shutdown of the nursing home uh, gowning up, gloving up, masking up, and being told I couldn't see her, being told I could, but I couldn't come back after that. It was it was a mess because everybody was trying to figure out protocol that they had never experienced before. Yeah, that was spooky. I was out in New Jersey speaking, and I was just on my way home. And from I was just out there for like a day. And the difference in the airport was incredible in one day and you just kind of you know wore your mask with your mouth hanging open going wow but I wasn't on there with an empty plane I was on with a full plane still and and not knowing you know what is going on um 
and then to come home because you think your mom's got a stroke on top of it, it is, is really, really tough. Um, are you glad that you ended up coming home to be able to be able to see her when you were let in, you know, I, I was one of the lucky ones. I, I, I look back on it now, you know, and I was just the luckiest person because I did get to go see her the day I landed and they told me I couldn't come back because I had just come from a hot zone. I had just flown on a plane and she was in quarantine and I spent five days doing FaceTime Zooms, looking in on her. She, her eyes were closed the whole time. And uh, I went out, I went there and stood outside her window. You know, I, I stood there. It was, it was March, you know, it was cold and dreary and wet and drippy, you know, down my back as the eve dripped on me. Um, I finally got through to the hospital administrator at the end and they let me come back in uh, because they decided she was near the end. And when I was getting ready to go into her room, the nurse looked at me and said, now you do know this is your last visit. And I looked at her and I thought, no, he didn't tell me that. He said I could come and be with her because this was near the end. But I also knew that it was her between me and the door. So I just looked at her and I bobbed my head. Yes, she let me in and I refused to come out. And I was, you know, determined that I wasn't going to leave her room. And I spent the next two days in there. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't brought a thing with me because I didn't know they were going to say that. So I spent two days without a toothbrush, <laughs> my hair, my hairbrush, no shower, you know, and a mask. And um, I got to say, I got to be with her when she left. Wow. I, that just brings tears to my eyes. I mean, you, and you hear it just, the matter of factness in which you're told and, and yet, you know, and it's not that I don't think staff are, weren't compassionate at that time. It was just that they were all in crisis and trying to protect everybody at one time and short staffed and the whole. That's exactly what it was. They didn't yeah. know. And they, they were doing the best they could and I got it, but, but I wasn't going to let that come between me and my mother and, um, so, so with that, other things ensued, like the administrator was called and, you know, they came into the room repeatedly and, you know, in the end we found our way <laughs> together, mm -hmm. but, um, it was, it was, um, new for them, you know, new for them and definitely new for me. Yeah. Oh, I, I would have been right there with you if they would have told me that too. It's like, I would like chain myself to a tree. Like they do. No, you're not cutting this one down. <laughs> you're not getting me out of here. Uh, well, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to be with her at the end. I mean, that's so precious of a moment um, in really fighting for, for your relationship with her and for, mm -hmm. you know, her to not be alone. Now, what led you to write the book? I mean, were you like writing things down, you know, as your story was unfolding or did it kind of hit you after the fact? That was the thing, sort of like we said in the beginning here, I think there are mainly two kinds of people uh, in, in a crisis. There are the ones who um, they're glad it's over and they tuck into their shell and they don't ever want to see that scenario again. They don't want to talk about it. They just want to move on. And then there's the other group that are so shell-shocked by it that they just have to tell their story. You know, they just, they have to let other people know what happened and hopefully guide them from it happening to them. 
And I am not a writer. Um, I love the English language and, you know, English was my favorite subject. I'm a reader, but I was looking for the book in 2012. Let's remember there really was a limited internet access back then. We had it, but we didn't have podcasts and we had very little online access to dementia facts. So I was going to my library and trying to find books that might help me. And what I was finding was either books that were very uh, medically oriented for for a more advanced medical profession, or the dementias described were much further along than than what my mother was experiencing. You know, I read the 36-hour day. That's a fantastic book. I treated it like my Bible. But even in that book, the dementias were so much more pronounced. I had this little slippery snake, you know, I was trying to grab a hold of. And she was capable of saying no, capable of walking out that door that I safely tucked her behind, getting into cars with people, walking down the highway. And I was just chasing after this scenario after scenario. And I couldn't find a book that prepared me for those kinds of things. So what I was doing was emailing friends, you know, my girlfriends, you're not going to believe what my mother did today. You know, mom did this. Uh, I started writing things down just because it was a, a terrible thing that had happened. You know, a man camping in my mother's backyard because she met him at the gas station and said, sure, you're riding your bicycle across the United States. You can camp in my backyard, things like that. So after a short period of time and looking through some of my emails and the things I had jotted down, I realized I was writing the book that I had been looking for. So then I kind of treated it like that. And I would revisit things that happened during during my visits with her. And sometimes I would go weeks without writing anything down. And I would kid myself that we were turning the corner and things were getting better. You know, mom hadn't done anything crazy this week. So maybe I was out of the woods with her. And, you know, little did I know dementia doesn't work that way. There is no straight line and there is no recovery. So then I'd find new material to write about and keep adding to it until I knew what my final chapter was going to be. And, you know, I waited for that time too. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit, what was your mom like before the dementia? She sounds like she was probably pretty social and pretty independent. Yeah. My mom, my mom was the one who held the baby. She was everybody's baby holder. If you, you're at church and you've got three kids running around and a baby in your arms, just hand it to Faye. You know, she'll take care of it. Uh, all three of us kids were adopted as, uh, as babies individually. We're not, you know, we're not related to each other, but my mother was the one who wanted the big house full of kids and tried and tried and um, miscarried. So at her final miscarriage, when you know, it was a very, it was a crisis situation. And my dad was allowed to spend the night in the hospital and, you know, those kinds of things happened. And this was in the sixties. So back, back then, you know, adoption was kind of like the family secret, you know, you never knew what you were going to get. And, you know, were that was the family going to embrace this? And they even saw themselves as, you know, reproductive failures. You know, they couldn't manage to have kids when all of their friends and family were having kids. But my mom adopted with my father, um, all three of us, and was the stay-at-home mom until we were teenagers. So, you know, we had the Easter eggs hidden outside. You know, I learned how to bake 
pies and cookies and things with her. And we strung all the Christmas decorations in the trees. And she was, she was that kind of a mom. Um, so, so seeing the personality changes that I did witness with her was not just hard for me. It was um, kind of a slap in the face of the memory I had with my, of my mother. So I fought it, you know, I fought it in my own mind and I didn't like it. So it was hard for me not to dislike my mother, whom, whom I loved and who raised me. So you can imagine this angel and this devil I had on my, on my shoulders, you know, and one was saying, Carolyn, it's just the disease. And the other one was saying, Carolyn, she meant every word she just said to you about being a terrible daughter and about being a thief and about being her prisoner. And you're the one who's trying to keep her safe, you know, and you're the one who set up the bank account, you know, and, and, and got her safe and got her medications taken care of. Yet she was screaming at me that everything I did was an assault on her. Yeah, that is, that is hard not to take it personally. I think that's one of the biggest lessons for everyone to learn. And it's one of those things that people don't like sharing because you feel ashamed. Like, is it, does she really think that of me? Are they going to think that of me if I bring that up too? Is that, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just that so uncomfortable. So thank you for sharing uh, that with us. If you are just tuning in, we are talking to author Carolyn Burrell, and she cared for her mother and wrote this wonderful book called Walking with Faye. And she's been sharing her story um, struggles and joys, both, um, of her journey. And next we're going to learn about why her book is different. Um, she's already told us she wrote it because she was looking for a book and couldn't find one. And, you know, her whole purpose is to bring people comfort and to let them know that they're, that they're not alone. You can go to her website, which is Carolyn, uh, Burrell, which is B I R R E L L. And again, you can purchase her book on her website, Amazon, and any of the typical spots you typically buy your book at. Um, and she's also on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. So make sure to, to follow her. Her work is, is so appreciated. You know, I, I loved when you were talking, uh, Carolyn, about the kind of two different types of people on this journey. One says, done over with out of here. And the other one says, no, I have some, I have some things I can teach others. So it's not as difficult for them. And I'm, I'm grateful that you chose that second path um, to, to help others out with. Now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, why do you think your book is different from other memoirs that are out there? I've been asked that before. And um, it's a good question. I think what makes my book different and the feedback that I've gotten from so many people is that I'm kind of like every man, you know, I'm, I'm the woman you see on your own neighborhood street. I am not a celebrity. I don't have, you know, I didn't have the paid in home care available to me. I struggled on an everyday basis. You know, I was the one who was, you know, busy with my career, busy with my relationships. I had a, full life that nowhere in there was this built-in category of, you know, take care of mom who doesn't want to be taken care of, who's going to buck you every inch of the way. 
while you're trying to live this busy, normal life of yours. So I look at myself as that person. Um, I'm also brutally honest in the book. Um, I admit the things that I felt bad about when, when you say, you know, it's, it must've been hard for you to, to, to hear the things that your mother said, or that maybe people thought about you. I think I struggled more with how I felt about myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew full well that I disliked my mother on the day she said something to me that was just horrific. I knew how I felt every morning when I dreaded getting up and going to see her because I didn't know what I was going to find, you know, what new catastrophe was awaiting me behind that door. Um, I couldn't deny the fact that at many, many times during the eight years that I cared for her, I looked at it more as an obligation than I did as, gosh, I love my mom and I can't wait to go see her today. And I, and I struggled with that. Um, and I think, you know, when I say I, I liked normalizing things for people that are going to read my book and I like showing them examples and, and saying, look, this happened to me and it could happen to you too. I think the really big shift that I have felt uh, since writing the book and since talking to so many people is I'm actually nudging caregivers toward that love that needs to be shown to that person that you did once love, you know, with all of your heart, whether it's your spouse, you know, a friend, a a sibling, or your parent. And we get lost in the day-to-day business of taking care of business, you know, getting them to their medical doctor, getting their prescriptions taken care of, sorting through insurance forms. And like I said, all the while trying to live your own busy life. I think we're at risk for losing that sense of empathy and, and sincere love while we're busy being their new taskmaster, you know? And I think that in the end is really what I want my book to purvey to people. Yeah. I, I totally um, can relate to that. I, and I've told this story on the show before, but I ended up creating a tool called Your Memory Chip that people can download from our free resources because I snapped at my my mom one day when she repeated herself like 45 times in 10 minutes and I didn't have time. I didn't think it was funny. I didn't think it was cute. I couldn't make a game out of it. I was exhausted and I was looking at my to-do list that was 12 miles long thinking, how am I going to get this all done? And I snapped at her horribly and then that guilt of, oh my gosh, she didn't deserve that. It's the disease. Laura, you know better. And for me, I I ended up interviewing people all around the world, both professionals and families. But what it came down to was my tasks still needed to be done, but I was focusing on my tasks. And I decided I had to switch that up. And I had to focus first on was she happy, safe, and pain-free. And when I focused on those three things, I did my tasks different. I responded different. I found I could get rid of some of my tasks because some of them, I don't know if you did this, but I found that they were on my list to make me feel better that I was doing something for her with a disease that had no cure. Um, It also let me let others come in and help when I looked at that first, instead of wanting little clones of myself to do it the way I would do it, because that would make me feel better. And, 
And it really got me back to being relationship-based, being a daughter, being able to sit and just be quiet and take a breath and sit next to her on the couch. Um, because I never gave myself that pause before and be content when she was content. And that was, that was just life changing when, uh, like you, you got back to that source of love and why you're doing this to begin with. And it just, it totally reframed things. And not that I didn't have to make a lot of adjustments along my way, you know, because it, it's not a one and done thing um, with this disease, but boy, that really helped pull me back onto path and, um, and, and allowed me to be a better care partner for her and have a little more sanity for myself. Uh, I, I don't know. Did you ever feel like you were just like going crazy? I mean, there were times I know I just felt like, I don't know how much more I can handle or how much I can kind of reposition in my, in my mind of what's going on and what needs to be done. But it was just such at times, because I never gave up any of my other stuff, you know, I just took on more, you know, with, with both of my folks. And did you do the same? Just try to do it all, keep it all. I'm listening to you and I'm chuckling inside because we really are the same, aren't we? As a group, you know, as a group of caregivers, sure. There are differences. Everybody's different. Dementias are different. We have Louie body. We have Alzheimer's, we have frontal temporal, I get that. And we even have different personalities. You know, we have people who are happier, we have people who are, you know, paranoid, we have people who are angry. I, we have all those things. But I think we have a common core of, you know, trying to fit our loved ones new needs, confusing needs uh, into our lives. And we have to deal with the emotions that come from that within ourselves. And, you know, what you said is exactly what I felt. And I think it's probably very much what everybody feels with different, differing, you know, nuances. Um, and, and, and what I want to say to that is, you know, we have to, we have to take pause and we have to give ourselves a break if we can, because I think the emotions are real and you're not going to control them. You are going to get you know, I am going to have righteous indignation over being accused of doing something that I absolutely didn't do. And now I have a decision to make. Do I defend myself to this person who is not reasonable? Or do I take it on? You know, and do I find a way to maybe deflect a little bit, say I'm sorry for something I didn't do? That's just against our nature, isn't it? And it's coming to us from somebody who we are confused by because they never would have normally done that. They never would have said those things to us. And now they are. So we have to kind of reckon that in our brains too. I had a post-it note on my bathroom mirror near the end. And it said, today is a new day to make mistakes. <laughs> because like you said, I wasn't perfect. In fact, I wish I had more time. You know, I wish I'd had more time to practice the things that I had learned along the way because I felt like I learned them later. You know, I struggled for so long. And again, the reason I wrote the book, you know, if I can just help a few people prepare themselves sooner, you know, and gear up for it and remind themselves more often to, to like you said, be present and think more about, you know, gosh, mom is particularly difficult today. What's going on with her? She's 
more frightened than ever. What happened to frighten her and what can I do to ease her mind a little bit and get a better reaction out of her? If we could stop and do that a little bit more often, you know, the end result is we have a happier mom. But what we're really tending to do is react to mom's orneriness. You know, like, how dare you? How dare you act that way to me when I'm the person who's sacrificing everything and I am taking time out of my day to get you to your doctor's appointment that you forgot about and you're not dressed and we're going to be late. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just that human nature that we struggle with. Well, and like you said, getting to the whys, uh, why we are not taught that in school to me is asinine because you can use that in all of your life if you're dealing with kids or friends or you know, partners in life, it, you know, why, why is there that reaction? And it's empathy, you know, it's empathy, isn't it? Yeah. And we're missing it because we're getting caught up in all the other, you know, all the other tasks of the day. Yep. Well, and it's, and, and you know, you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, the white lies or the fiblets, you know, of, of going along. And there are some people that just absolutely, you know, I, I had one woman just ream me out when I was out East and, I was doing a talk and she came up afterwards and she says, I will never, ever lie. You know, that is the core of who I am and my relationship with my parent. And I will not do that. And I said, you know, that that is your choice. But also part of your choice is, do you want to bring them comfort or do you want to be right? And so what's going to be most important to you in your care style? And that's something I can't control. I'm just here to give out different opportunities. And to me, like I said, it, it came down to that, you know, safe, happy, pain-free. Because I had to come back down to kind of Maslow's theory and go, what is the basic need that every human has and wants? And we're all the same. You know, those three things. I don't know if I, I suppose maybe a masochist, you know, doesn't care if they're, they're feeling pain or not. But you know, it's just, that's for, for most of us, those are three basic things that we all want. And we all want to fit in and belong and feel part of community instead of being told what to do all the time. Or, I mean, I know I don't even like, like bringing my car in to get an oil change. Cause I don't like giving up that control for 20 minutes. You know, I, it's just, that's my personality. I don't necessarily like receiving help, but I love to help other people. And then you have to kind of reframe that in, well, if I'm not allowing other people to help, then I'm, I'm taking something that gives them joy and satisfaction and helping someone away too. So, I mean, there's all these things that you learn, you know, through this journey, but I think all of them apply to all of life. You know, they're not just a one and done skill for dementia. Um, even when it comes to caregivers in care partners, care companions, whatever you want to call them, um, throughout the world, I don't care what they're dealing with. If it's a, if it's a child, if it's a chronic illness, if it's dementia, we still are struggling with balance and how do we get everything done? How do we serve the best and still maintain our identity, which I think sometimes we struggle with. Um, greatly. I know after my mom died, I kind of felt like, who am I now? You know, I had this big gap of time and I had pulled away from friends and I wasn't as connected. 
as I once was. And I really, you know, people are like, well, what do you like to do? <laughs> I don't know. I don't ask myself that question because there's no time to do that. So it was kind of an irrelevant question. Did you ever feel that way? Oh, all the time. And and back to what you said about, you know, dementia or not, really what we're talking about is human relationships, aren't we? I had a reader email me and say, I wasn't going to read your book, but a friend suggested it. I don't have anybody that has dementia. So I just didn't see the point in it. And in the end, I realized I have this one difficult friend that we always spar, we always butt heads, and I don't want to lose her. And I realized I don't have to be right all the time. And there are times when she's insisting on something and I don't have to have it my way all the time. And I'm working on that relationship now. And I thought, wow, that is, that's exactly what this is all about. We're, we're in the human condition, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And we're just trying to get along. And if there's, you know, one little thing to learn about that, like you said, we don't have to be right all the time. We don't, it doesn't have to go our way. There are a million different ways for something to play out that even if that's something, you know, you learn from reading this, that's valuable. Yeah. And we, you know, we tell ourselves when we have kids about, you know, pick your battles, but we don't apply that to other scenarios and it or just, explain it. Yeah. And it just drains our energy and our, in our friendships and our relationships. And sometimes we let it destroy them, you know, right. all together. Now you talk about um, in your writings, like Faye's stories. What can you give us some examples of, of what her stories would be? Yeah. And they, they escalated, you know, the, the early stories are, are what you hear a lot of, which are, you know, repeated, repeated scenarios on a loop, you know, uh, the same story about her cat or, or would you like a cup of coffee? How many times did I have a seat with my mother and she would ask if I would like a cup of coffee many times when I had the cup of coffee sitting in my lap, mm -hmm. um, you know, those kinds of things were the first little warning bells uh, and the lost jewelry and the man at the end of the driveway. Uh, one of the big ones really was the man who she allowed to camp in her backyard. He did pop a tent up and I had to go ask him to leave when her neighbor called me and told me there was a man in her backyard because I knew she was going to wake up in the middle of the night. She was going to look out that window and be totally surprised to see somebody in her backyard and it was going to frighten her. That escalated. Um, that kind of thing. She stole her neighbor's mail and she would do it in the middle of the day. So she would just wait for the mailman to come by and walk over and open their mailbox and take it and bring it into her house because she was sure that that mail contained information on her and that they were keeping an eye on her. Somehow that little brain of hers made those dot connections. She, um, would walk to the gas station up the street and buy a gallon of milk. And she would do that three times in one day and then put them on her counter because she couldn't see them if they were in the refrigerator. So I would be greeted by, you know, numerous gallons of milk on her countertop in various stages of ready to burst. Mm -hmm. And inevitably she would open one for her coffee and she would have milk everywhere. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that you're telling yourself they're not normal. You know, these are these are not excusable behaviors, even the early days and trying to get yourself geared up to insert yourself in a 
incredibly independent woman's life and take away her depend her independence and not welcomed doing it you know imagine trying to gear yourself up like the woman you talked to who said i would never lie to my parents well i felt that way too because they were the authority you know i was raised in a strict patriarchal home dinner was on the table 30 minutes after my dad pulled into the driveway and we all were there to eat it not talk about it you know and 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 so being raised by somebody like that and then trying to take anything away from them was not only unheard of in my book it it shattered me you know it scared me to death yeah well it 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 kind of rips at like you said the core of everything you've learned all your life you know and exactly and that's really tough. If there was one thing that you want your readers to walk away with after reading your book, what would that be? Without a doubt, it it is now that, you know, your loved one is here for a finite amount of time. It may feel like forever, <laughs> but they definitely are here for a finite amount of time because that is what dementia is. There's no recovery from it. And there are stages and you can educate yourself on those stages and try to be comfortable with them. And you can even follow your loved one through those stages. But more than anything, and it's the one thing that I think I struggled with the most after my mom passed away, was you don't get a second chance for a do-over. You know, once you can figure out how to make your loved one feel loved, and I'm not talking about loving them by getting them the, to their doctor's appointments and taking care of them and making sure they're fed and clothed. I'm talking about not sighing in front of them when you're having to deal with something, not rolling your eyes because your loved one repeated themselves again for the hundredth time, not rushing them when they can't go any faster. I'm talking about showing them love. And if you can practice that and get good at it and remember to ask yourself when they're at their worst, you know, they must be very upset about something to be lashing out at you today. If you can get to the bottom of that and practice finding that out, I think that is what I want my reader to take away because it feels horrible to know that your, your person is gone and that all you can remember is that last harsh thing you said to them or that last shortness you treated them with when they were here during that time that you had time with them and could have done it differently. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up about using kind of multi-sensory engagement because people think that they don't understand, they don't take things in. Um, and they might not be able to process things in a logical order and timely fashion, but they do process emotions and they will pick up the eye roll. They will hear the sigh. They will see your arms crossed. They will hear, you know, your feet stomping across the floor and they know what all of that stuff means. And, you know, people with dementia have told me that they actually rely on that more um, same with lip reading. That's why it's important to be face to face instead of, you know, having your back turned to them and, and talking. 
is they say it's kind of like what they've always heard about someone who is blind or deaf, that their other senses increase to help them put the patterns together. And so it's, it is amazing what they understand on that emotional level. And a lot of times, um, and this might get to some of those, those whys, if you can keep this in mind, that an emotion is coming out, it's being triggered because something that just happened reminded them of something else way back when, and it had nothing to do with what's happening now, but that feeling was associated to something that was either happy or sad or scary or whatever it was in the past, because they don't have the details, but the, but the emotion is still ingrained in their brain. And I've always found that really, really fascinating. So um, that's an important thing. I mean, I hear that from my, my daughter, who's 35, mom, I, I heard your sigh, you know, <laughs> I'm like, what, what are you talking about? I mean, cause you just, we are unconsciously doing a lot of those things or you just rolled your eyes at me. No, I did. Yes, you did. You know, well, I guess they're looking at me and I'm looking out and who knows what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, but really in order for us to be conscious of those things, we have to slow down and we have to think and we have to breathe instead of rushing through life. And to me, it's a choice of consciously caring. And there's, to me, there's a difference between caring and doing those tasks and really consciously thinking about the house and the whys and uh, you know, what are you, what are you there for? And how do you want to feel after they're gone too? Because you brought up a great point of, who wants to think about what they didn't do or that they didn't do as well as they knew they could have as their last memory. And there's a lot of people out there living with guilt, you know, because of that. And, and that's not the, I, I don't believe that's the point of any journey is to live in guilt. It's to, to learn from that. Um, anything else that you want to share? This has just been a wonderful conversation. You've given us such, such great insights. I feel like you've asked me all the right questions and, and we've covered so much ground. I think the only, the only last thing I would say is sort of a tag onto what you just said. And that is, you know, ask yourself, how would you like this conversation or interaction to go? You know, how would you like it to, to turn out? Would you like your loved one, you know, to have the relaxed shoulders and maybe a little smile on their face, you know, if those are your goals, you know, see what you can do to find a way to help them to help them achieve that. Because the A, B and C of it, you know, don't matter as much as what you're asking yourself your end goal is. And that's in any relationship, you know, I have an interaction with somebody at the grocery store, I want them to turn around and continue shopping with a little bit of a smile on their face. You know, how do I go about doing that? It's almost like, you know, giving the gift, you know, give that gift of love uh, to, to everybody that you, that you come across. And I think anybody who's listening to, you know, this episode of your show, you know, they're already halfway there, aren't they? They're curious. They want to know a little bit more about maybe what I have to say, and they want to pick up maybe that one little tidbit then they're halfway there. Exactly. Well, in wrapping up, I just, I, I can't thank you, uh, Carolyn, enough for sharing your story, your journey for caring for your, your mom um, and, and your book, Walking with Faye. 
Um, I think it's an extraordinary journey that you're sharing, giving people that sense that they're not alone. And, and like you said, being brutally honest with the good, the bads and the ugly on this journey, you know, we can't help if we're really not authentic in terms of what's going to happen. And just because it happened to you or it happened to me, doesn't mean it's going to happen to them, but it, it opens up the door for people to understand, well, maybe something different will happen to me, but I can still learn from other people's journeys in terms of how they handled it. And, you know, this isn't a one and done, you know, get the, the uh, book 101 for, for dummies and dementia, you know, caregiving. I mean, it's not out there. Everybody's journey is different. There's not a right or wrong. Our personalities, our relationships, our financial abilities, our, um, you know, emotional, physical abilities, all of that stuff comes into play. Physical distance, our communication skills. I mean, it, it's endless in terms of all the things that that impact us. So, you know, for our audience, I'd really ask that you be a giver of hope. And by that, <clears throat> I ask you to like, click and share, not because I want the numbers. I am not a numbers girl at all, but I know just like Carolyn knows, there are people in your sphere of influence that need this information, but they don't know where to find it. They don't know how to grab it. And so make it easier. Or maybe it'll be somebody who isn't dealing with dementia, like that one reader who wrote her and said, hey, I can apply this over here. Um, giving care is a universal thing we all do. And there's so much that you can learn from her book. Again, you can go to her website, Carolyn, and her last name is B-I-R-R-E-L-L.com, CarolynBurrell.com. You can purchase her book on uh, Amazon or any of the typical spots you go to. You can also follow her on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, thank you, everyone. And Carolyn, again, thank you so much for your time and and the love you put into sharing this. I know this is a lot of work to write a book and then to even just get out there and talk about it. Um, you know, it's, it's time consuming, but you're, you're helping a lot of people. So thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Well, I'm going to give you one last push to go to alzheimerspeaks.com. Check out all those free resources we have. Um, we've been curating them since 2009. Won't cost you a penny. You don't have to give us any personal information. They're just yours for the taking. And same with Dementia Map. Um, check that out. We've got over 150 different categories. There's a glossary of terms, a calendar of events, and some great articles, uh, so much more. Uh, so you can just go to DementiaMap.com as well. See you next time, everyone. Bye-bye. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what can be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.